Hello and welcome to The Solution, a wellness manifesto. I'm your host, Dr. Nate Lowenstein, and this is episode number eight. It's the environment, dummy. All right, let's get into it. Welcome to episode eight. Okay. Today we're going to expand on our discussion about exactly how environmental influences can predict and determine to some degree health outcomes. But first, I want to bring to the front of our minds some facts and some statistics that I believe are relevant to this conversation. Some of them you've definitely heard before, and that's not by accident. Many of us uh, often learn through repetition, so it might not be until the fourth or seventh time you hear something that it actually sticks, and it really just depends on where you are when you hear it. In previous episodes, I've thrown out some quotes from the World Health Organization, and here's another one. Modern dietary patterns and physical activity patterns are risk behaviors that travel across countries and are transferable from one population to another, like an infectious disease, and this affects disease patterns globally. If you take a second to think about that, what that is saying is that how we Westerners eat and our sedentary lifestyle is now essentially considered a communicable disease, much like influenza or even COVID. And we are spreading it across the globe. The Western unhealthy lifestyle is likely the most deadly pandemic of all time. Preventable lifestyle chronic illness accounts for almost half of all of the deaths in the world. In previous episodes and in workshops, I've tried to make a case that many lifestyle factors are accountable for these illnesses. If you're at all willing to acknowledge that there's any truth to that, you have to be willing to acknowledge that our behaviors can determine, at least to some degree, our risk. And if we can agree on that, then it's worth knowing how we're doing right now in terms of our behavior. Right now, the United States spends $325 billion on prescription medications. That's 40% higher than the next country in line. And I know we like winning, but not in this case. When comparing health measures of comparable nations to the United States, we rank dead last. In a seminar I was in with Dr. James Chestnut, he said something I've never forgotten. Right now, there isn't a single medication on the market for a chronic disease that actually makes the person taking it healthier. There's no drug that results in improved health. And he's right. In fact, several medications available on the market right now that are used to treat chronic illness don't actually result in any extension of life at all. And if that's true, what is the point unless it's the money? So if the medication approach is failing miserably, and it is, what's going on? Well, if you think about it in these terms, how many of your symptoms and how many of your health problems are caused by a deficiency of the chemical compound found in those medications? How many of you think high blood pressure is caused by a deficiency of beta blockers or that high cholesterol is caused by a deficiency of statin drugs or that headaches are a deficiency of some vitamin that you'll find in Motrin and so on and so on and so on? The bottom line is Americans are not healthy. And I know that I have some listeners in overseas, particularly in Australia, and guys, you are not far behind on this stuff either. We, America and Australia, battle it out for the most obese nation. Uh, When I was living there, Australia was winning. Now that I'm back in America, I think we're winning again, so it must have something to do with where I live. But the bottom line is if you're overweight or obese with a high BMI and a large waist circumference, if you eat a diet high in processed foods, loaded with added sugar and high in unhealthy fats, 
If you're not performing some form of moderate to intense physical exercise most days of the week, and most importantly, if you're currently taking a medication prescribed to you to treat one of these things that leads to chronic illness, you are not well, period. Another thing I have to keep repeating, especially in 2020, the biggest reason I believe more than any other that COVID is beating the hell out of the United States is that we're not a healthy country. And this virus, like many others, is hard on people with pre-existing health conditions. Our behavior is determining this. I already mentioned how much we spend on prescriptions. Other equally relevant numbers, more than 70% of Americans are overweight. That means that 70% of us have a pre-existing condition right now. More than 40% of us are obese. And feel free to come at me with the BMI is irrelevant line. And I'm going to have to ask you, what is your waist circumference? What is your physical activity level every week? And possibly how much weight can you lift off the ground? In addition, 60% of Americans are taking at least one prescription medication. So that means that for sure 60% have a pre-existing condition. They're being treated for it. 25% are diagnosed with two or more chronic conditions. Meanwhile, we spend $117 billion annually on fast food, $96 billion on beer, almost 20% of Americans still smoke, which I really can't understand that at all. The majority of Americans don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. 80% of us don't get enough exercise. And meanwhile, the average American adult watches 35 hours a week of TV. And kids, when this study was published, were getting between 28 and 34 hours a week of screen time. And that number has certainly been on the rise, particularly with the advent of portable devices. Watching a screen has become, for most of us, almost a full-time job. And many of you will say to yourself or to your family, I just don't have the time for exercise. But if you will fall into the category of a person watching a screen for 30 plus hours a week, you have the time to exercise and you have the time to make healthy food choices. The summary here is that we are creating an environment for ourselves that results in sickness. And that's the point of today's discussion. In his book, The Biology of Belief, Dr. Bruce Lipton is quoted as saying, quote, it's the environment, dummy. So what does he mean by that? What he's talking about is epigenetics. Well, what is epigenetics? And this is going to be one of those times where I'm going to attempt to take somewhat difficult or complex topic and try to simplify it. So here we go. Uh, what is epigenetics, Nate? Great question, buddy. In the handbook of epigenetics published in 2010, there's a pretty good set of definitions that I'm going to borrow from. Starting with this one, epigenetics is the collective, stable, inheritable changes in phenotype due to processes that arise independently of primary DNA sequencing. All right, so obviously we need to kind of pull that apart. When you hear the word phenotype, what you're hearing is essentially the genes that you express at any given point in time, from your eye color to whether or not you're in fight or flight. Our understanding of epigenetics is that the genes you use and express frequently that becomes your epigenetic profile. The main thing to understand is that our epigenetic expression happens independent of changes in our DNA. Your DNA remains exactly the same. Your expression of those genes changes based on your environment. Here's another important point. In the definition I just gave you, you'll remember it says that epigenetics is collective, stable, and heritable changes in expression. This means that whatever your epigenetic profile is when you conceive a child, that will be that child's epigenetic starting point. And that is huge. 
your children do not just inherit their primary DNA sequence from you, which they do, they also inherit to a large degree how those genes are going to be expressed once they're born. And what determines that expression for you and them? You may have guessed it by now, but it's the environment, dummy. The manual goes on to say, epidemiological factors have great importance in epigenetics, and this is influenced by things like diet, environmental agents, infections, drugs, and likely many other factors as well. Everything listed in here, diet, things that you consume, food, alcohol, water, infections, when you become ill, how you recover from those illnesses, drugs or other chemical compounds you may ingest, environmental agents, whether good or bad, these things influence your genetic expression and all of these things are found in your environment. The last quote from this book to help with our definition, many biological processes are controlled not through gene mutations, which is sort of what we've been taught for years is that gene mutations occur and then we develop things like cancer or diabetes. But a lot of these processes are changing or are being controlled not through the gene changing, but rather through reversible inheritable epigenetic phenomena. Reversible, meaning that when we change our environment, that will change the epigenetic profile. Inheritable, meaning whatever our epigenetic profile is at conception will be that for the child and their starting point. So it is the environment. One of the best studies, in my opinion, ever published on this subject is the epigenetic study carried out on something called the agouti mouse species. People have spent a lot of money trying to genetically modify or alter these mice to change their outcome. And this is a study done back in 2000. And I realized that was 20 years ago, but the results and implications on our understanding of environment and gene expression are still very relevant. So the thing about the agouti mice is they are genetically prone to cancer and diabetes. They have a gene called the agouti gene that creates this situation. So they're at a genetic disadvantage when it comes to chronic illness. These mice are large, yellow, they eat a lot, and every generation looks like the previous generation and is susceptible to cancer and diabetes. So in this study, the researchers changed the diet of the mother right before conception. What were the results? They created a generation of mice that were slender and brown compared to their obese yellow parents, and more importantly, the offspring did not display their parents' susceptibility to cancer and diabetes the effect of the agouti gene had been virtually erased in one generation. It's absolutely critical to understand that the mother's genes were not altered and the genes of the offspring were not altered either. The offspring received the agouti gene intact. What had changed was the gene's expression and that expression was altered due to changes in the environment, namely, in this study, changes in the diet. So we have some idea that eating well can have an impact on overall health and risk of developing chronic illness. What about other environmental inputs? This is what I think is probably one of the most landmark studies in understanding how powerful your environment can be and how a focus on all three pillars of eating, moving, and thinking well can help limit our risk. A researcher the last name of cow looked at the environmental impacts on cancer. This group had previously published that living in what they referred to as an enriched environment affected growth factors in the brain and led to improved survival of brain cells. So we're talking about that brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, that we mentioned in the exercise episode. 
In short, if they create an ideal environment in terms of physical and social well-being, that had a profoundly positive impact on brain survivability and function. So they set out to determine whether social and physical components of environment could impact cancer. They wanted to see if an environment created for optimized brain health, which they defined as having improved learning and memory. They wanted to see if that environment could also lead to an anti-cancer phenotype. So there's that word again. They were looking to see how the environment would affect gene expression. So we are looking at epigenetics. Can putting these mice in an ideal physical and social environment affect their susceptibility to cancer? Well, here's what they found. An enriched environment led to suppression of cancer proliferation in every model they tested. And what that means is various models of looking at how cancer is onset or how it proliferates, they want to look at various models of that. But what they found is that the enriched environment was beneficial in all of their different models. And here's the biggest takeaway from this research, in my opinion. This effect worked even when they waited to place the subjects in the enriched environment until the cancer tumors were well established. So in this case, they gave these mice cancer. They let that cancer get pretty bad. And then they introduced these mice into what they considered to be an enriched environment for mice. And even those mice had higher rates of remission. The summary of the article reads, and you should never just focus on the summary of an article, but it, it, this one does a nice job of being able to communicate to the public what was actually found here. Mice living in an enriched housing environment show reduced tumor growth and increased remission, and that it was not caused by physical activity alone. Essentially, in the study, they ruled out through the course of the study that the effect they were seeing was not just based on exercise, the effect was a result of the entirety of the enriched environment. So eating, moving, and thinking well. The summary goes on, serum from these animals held in an enriched environment inhibited cancer proliferation. So there are a few things that I think are important to pull out and review from that. All of our worlds are colliding in this study. Remember from a previous episode, we talked about how suppression of negative emotional states can create a stressful mind environment for the person doing that and for that person's significant other. In addition to that, this study discussed how the enriched environment created a specific upregulation of BDNF, which if you have a rocking memory, you'll know that we dis we've discussed previously how specific areas of the brain and BDNF are influenced both by stress and by exercise, provided that the exercise requires acquisition of new skills. So we're seeing all of those things influence susceptibility to and recovery from cancer. It is the environment. And this is a story I always repeat when I discuss this study in workshops. The first time in my life when I realized that death was permanent was when my grandmother passed away. She died from liver cancer, and I don't remember exactly how old I was. I was pretty young, uh, but I do remember understanding that I was never going to see her again. And I remember visiting her in her hospital room, and I distinctly remember that everything, her skin, her fingernails, and even the whites of her eyes were yellow, and that she was very sick. And this study demonstrates that mice in an enriched environment have significantly higher rates of remission and reduced tumor growth. My grandmother's cancer was treated in a sterile hospital room where she laid in bed watching TV all day. She ate a terrible diet high in refined carbohydrates, 
which is rocket fuel for cancer. And it's really only fuel, but that's a topic for another show. And she was limited on how much time she could spend with loved ones. And she didn't get out of that bed at all. Looking back on that, I think that's the farthest thing from an enriched environment for a human being that I can come up with. And I think if this research is going to teach us anything, it's that we can look at some of our areas of treatment and possibly improve them. In addition, we as a whole need to work toward prevention to a greater degree, which is, again, the thesis of this entire show. And when it comes to epigenetics and epigenetic phenomenon, there are books, papers, there's a mountain of stuff you can go and read. I, I focused on these two studies because I think they are some of the most profound, and it's hard not to discuss them at length. And I could throw more in there, but eventually I'd probably just bore you. And time is also an issue for these episodes. We try to keep them around 20 minutes. So remember, I'm just trying to provide enough information to at least be convincing on a topic enough that you maybe will look further into it without beating a horse to death. But if you are interested in the topic, feel free to dig deeper. And I got a uh, kind of a professional note from a listener to start to include maybe some uh, links and notes to the stuff I refer to. So I'm definitely going to put the link to the paper on environment and mice and their brains. And I'll put a link to the Discovery Magazine article about the agouti mice study. So feel free to dig deeper. What you're going to discover in the end, the further you dig, is it's the environment, dummy. So as I mentioned last week, I changed course. I wanted to do this episode on epigenetics. I wanted to talk a little bit more about how or why we understand that environment starts to determine our susceptibility to illness. And the solution step for today is pretty simple. So today's application, I just want you to kind of reflect on if you're listening to this podcast and, and you're listening to podcasts like it and your interest in your health, do you actually want to be healthy? Do you actually want to improve your health? Do you really care about your well-being? And do you want to make an effort? Are you willing to do some work to improve your health and extend your life? If you don't, that's okay. Um, but if you do, well, and if you don't, you should probably stop listening to this show because the more you learn, the more stressed out you're going to be about not doing anything about it. But if you do, if you are interested, if this is motivating you, this information can only help you if you put it to work. So I want you to think about why you want to do that. And I don't want you to just think about it. I want you to, for real, take a minute and write it down. I want to work toward improved health because what? And as you begin to engage in everything else we've discussed, your 800-gram challenge, uh, we're going to get back into some more specific stuff with nutrition, uh, probably starting in the next episode. Whenever you find you're being challenged, whenever you feel like maybe I'm not going to exercise today, and then today turns into tomorrow, turns into next week, refer back to this. This one piece of paper is going to tell you why your efforts are worthwhile why you're worth the effort and why whatever it is that's motivating you is worth the effort. And this is going to help you to write better self-talk when you're struggling. So that is your solution work for today. I will actually be out of town next weekend, so I don't think I'll have the time to get another episode produced, but I'll be back the following week. And I believe unless I'm struck by lightning and a new idea and I change my mind, we'll probably get back on the road to some nutrition stuff. On top of that, please keep your questions coming. I really look forward to a Q&A episode down the track sometime. And I am working towards getting more guest hosts so you can hear somebody's voice other than mine.
All right. Have a great day. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Solution, a wellness manifesto. I appreciate you being here. I hope that the information we covered in this week's episode was beneficial to you and that you can apply it into your life to help yourself move away from sickness and towards health. I'd like to thank my sponsor, Functional Performance Chiropractic and Wellness, for their ongoing support. And I'd like to appeal to you. If you know anyone who would benefit from the information we're talking about on this show, and I know you do, please refer them back to episode number one so we can all get started on the same page. I look forward to working with you and them. Until next week, take good care of yourself.